Welcome back to another episode of the Industrious Podcast. Thank you guys all for joining us from wherever you get your podcasts. If you happen to be tuning in on the Assessor YouTube channel, thank you for doing so. And just real quick, if you haven't already done so, hit the little subscribe button or that notification bell icon so you can be alerted when new episodes like this one drop. We would appreciate it. It doesn't cost you a single dime. All right, big episode today, folks. Um, longtime media vet here in central Indiana, Mr. Gary Dick. Gary, welcome to the Industrious Thank Podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation. Oh, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Um, why don't you have a pretty storied past, so I'll let you kind of do your own intro for those that may not be familiar. Uh, but, but if you would, go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience. Yep, native Hoosier. Grew up in a uh, little town, Clinton, Indiana, which is... Uh, about 15 miles north of Terre Haute, Vermilion County, Indiana. So small town, uh, really a great place to grow up uh, and uh, ended up, uh, I wanted to be a high school basketball coach. That's what I thought I was going to be. And uh, played sports in high school, three sports, baseball, basketball, um, and football. Our, our my junior year, we were undefeated. It was right at the beginning of the, right at the beginning of the playoffs. I think, I think it might have been the second year, 1970, uh, 74. We were undefeated, but and back then there were three classes in in football, and you got bonus points if you played if you beat a school larger than you, a AAA. Okay. Yep. But you got points taken away if you beat a smaller school. And we had it was one of those years. The class ahead of me was just really good really really good it was one of those one of those years you get sometimes in a small town and we had a great team and we were undefeated and didn't make the playoffs we wow. beat tarot south the triple a team we beat them 25 to nothing okay and had two touchdowns called back so we had a good team uh but you remember that pretty soon. i do i do yeah i could probably go play I my think, play I'm, i feel like there's a little bit of a wound still existing about those two touchdowns yeah yeah yeah, yeah i think you're exactly right um <laughs> But sports, love sports, do to this day, certainly. And But uh, that was a big part of my my childhood growing up. Uh, they don't give uh, Division three scholarships, but got money to play football and baseball at DePaul okay. in, in, um, in Greencastle. Got mono when I was there, before my freshman uh, year football camp, and um, got reaction to the mono went into the hospital got packed with ice i mean i was really sick got you know got started in school like three weeks late i should have laid out didn't lay out and that first semester was awful my whole experience my fault was was terrible at depaul uh but you know how things work out ended up transferring to indiana state and that's how i got into well first of all determined i didn't want to be a high school basketball coach anymore huh. Um, I was doing an internship, West Vigo High School. We were playing Terre Haute North, the big rival, much bigger school. Uh, they didn't have a three-point line back then. Mm -hmm. We're ahead by three points with one second to go. They had the ball underneath their own basket. Okay, we're up by three. Our coach calls timeout, tells these guys, look guys, they've got the ball, let them, let them score. Just let them you know, catch the ball, throw, there's two points. Buzzer sounds, we win by one. Right. Couldn't have been more clear. <laughs> so you know what happened. <laughs> he, they threw the ball in, our guy fouled the guy, went to overtime. We ended up winning the game, but I thought that night, there's no way I want my paycheck dependent upon that. Right. You know? And then just kind of stumbled into television, actually, when I was over there. Uh, they have a good radio and TV program at Indiana State, okay. but importantly, had three TV stations. and. I would work for 
nothing. I mean, I did get paid one uh, doing the weekend weather, believe it or not, in Terre Haute as a college student. Uh, so got tremendous amount of experience there. And uh, first job out of school was in Fort Wayne, uh, Indiana, reporter at the NBC station. ABC station there recruited me about a year and a half later in Channel 6 here in Indy um, in 1983, late 83. Uh, moved here uh, in 83 so yeah so was that basketball experience what really kind of shifted your um, I guess intentions of what you wanted to do in terms of like and what was it about broadcasting that may have triggered that you know it's it's funny I, I, I don't know I was always I always enjoyed communications you know classes and that kind of thing well I was doing an internship I said well I'll try this out they had an internship at channel 38 which was the ABC station at the time in Terre Haute the blizzard of 78. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm working that day um, and this, the storm hits and we're stuck there and, and people can't get in. Little college student, they actually put me on the air reading <laughs> closings, you know, that night. Right. <laughs> I know, didn't know what the age I was doing uh, but I did it, and I could not believe later, because everybody was snowbound, so people were watching TV. I mean, all these people, oh, I saw you on TV. That was really, you know. Right. I thought, well, that's kind of, that's kind of intriguing. Um, and it was that, that, that initial experience, and uh, as I got a little bit more into it, really like the news piece, the news um, element of broadcasting. And, uh, you know, got going, I did. I did. I would get up at four in the morning and walk to um, a radio station, do do cut-ins on a rock station in Terre Haute. Uh, some of these things I didn't get paid for. I just did it for the experience, and it was just it was a really a great time. As I said, in, uh, Larry Bird, he was there in Terre Haute at that time, so we had a great amount of fun uh, watching basketball and and having fun at the local uh, campus establishments, and right. uh, so it was fun. Nice library. Yes, the right. library exactly. <laughs> Every now and then, the bookstore. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Those are two two establishments. Mm -hmm. Correct, correct. And they're on campus. Yeah, on campus too. There yes. you go. Um, so, born and raised Clinton, mm -hmm. matriculated to Indiana State. You jump into your professional career, which you've now found a mm -hmm. a avenue to broadcast journalism. And you you fast forward through your your stints in smaller markets. You land in Indy. What what caused you to set roots here? Yeah, great question because I think it's a it's it's a story that is probably replicated many many times. So, uh, you know, I get out of college and and you know, boom, I'm going to go to Chicago. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You had this whole, you know, idea of of where you wanted to go, and um, I had a had a job offer in Nashville, Tennessee, which for I was fortunate because by doing all of these jobs in college. I had so much more experience than anybody uh, my right. age. So that prompted A, stations to look at me, and then B, you know, if I went in and did the interview and stuff, I had an opportunity to get a job. So got an offer in, in Nashville, uh, and that actually that didn't, that didn't pan out, but I was, my anticipation was to get to Chicago, and then an opportunity, a good buddy of mine had left the station I was at, came to Indianapolis as a producer, and, um, um, you know, there was an opening and he recommended me to the news director and ended up getting the job here. And like so many people in so many industries, once you get here, you know, you just, 
Indy in this area is just such a great area. So, and I always liked Indianapolis, and I thought, you know, maybe one day after I've gone to some of these other bigger markets, I'd come back here and settle down. But got here, we had our first child in 84, so just a few months after we got here, and the rest is history. So it's such, it such a great city. There was so much going on. Channel 6, you know, at the time was the dominant uh, station. They were for so many years. And uh, so worked with just great people at Channel 6, great broadcasters, great people. So it was just fun all the way around. Yeah. What was your yeah. first role at WRTV? Uh, they called it Field Anchor, okay. which was you would be out in the field somewhere live basically every night. So. Uh, and this is back when they would give people time to do stories, which they don't now. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just, you know, quick, quick. Right. Um, but I would say, for example, um, General Motors strike. General Motors strike, I'd go to Ander be in Anderson. During the day, I'd put together, you know, probably a three or four minute story, which is unheard of today. And then they would throw it to me with kind of the big story of the night out in the field. So field anchor was my... Um, kind of my first job and really had that job doing stories out in the field and to the extent that we did stories around the state um we uh you know we'd go do those stories too mm -hmm. so i was fortunate because over the 13 or so years i was at channel six i was able to develop a lot of really good relationships and contacts and uh institutional knowledge of cities and towns um really in every corner of the state right which lo and behold was a good building block for the next move without question yeah so you answered one of my questions was you were at channel six for 13 years mm -hmm. um let's talk about the transition mm -hmm. what i guess what occurred to make even consider doing that and then ultimately what was what was the decision deciding factor to make yeah. that decision to to leave and start your own thing enjoyed what i was doing enjoyed again channel six the people everything about it but as i looked at it and i could see um you, you know television news becoming a different animal in terms of the kinds of stories you covered, the amount of depth. You know, television's never been a, you know, real deep reporting deal. But, I mean, back in 83, 84, 85, they would give you time to do stories. You could get into stories and do, you know, do your job. I just felt as though it was going the path that you're, you know, almost a robot could do it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And maybe with AI, maybe that's going <laughs> to happen, unfortunately, pretty soon. But um, I could see that happening. And as much as I liked doing what I was doing at the time, I said, I don't want to wake up in 10 years or 15 years and decide that I want to do something else. Yeah. And at that time, if I, if I wait 10 years, it'll be too late. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll be f so far down the road. So I thought, you know what? what what could i do well the natural progression is to go from television to a corporate communications job okay. lily or you know roche whatever the, the case might be so guidant was a company it was it was part of lily mm -hmm. at uh i think at that point or i don't know if they'd spun out at that point but anyway um i had uh, started with guidant and there was an opportunity at, at lily and this would have been in around 95 and um, I got an offer to go there, and I said, well, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get out of TV and go down this corporate communications path. 
well, back then there was a there was a CEO uh, who wasn't there a long time, Von Bryson, I remember, and it was a tumultuous time at Lilly, which was so unusual because you know they're so close to the vest, and you know yeah. you know you never hear anything bad there. Well, they had a uh, basically a coup. I think it was a Friday. They called it Black Friday, and. The CEO was ousted, several people, you know, just total upheaval. Everything kind of, you know, was up for grabs. So bottom line, that job offer that I expected to get and was told I was going to get was off the table. Mm. And I was devastated. I was, I was so disappointed. You know, I'm like, my God. That was, I was all set. Mindset was, that's what I'm going to do. And all of a sudden it was gone. So rather than feel, although I did feel sorry for myself for a while, but rather than dwell on it. I said, well, what am I going to do? What do I know? I know broadcasting. I know Indiana. I know people. I have contacts, business news. I have, you know, some, some, you know, some um, wherewithal there. And what if I created a business show, which is not an unusual, you know, it's not a unique idea. Many people had tried before, but my thought was at that time, and it's certainly still the case, you could get national uh, business news a million different places on cable and certainly it's that way today. Um, But where do you go to get local business news? We see what was happening then and certainly has continued here in terms of business news coverage, you know, in newspapers. And certainly local TV has never done a great job of covering business news, but now it's, you know, it's an afterthought. So where do you go to get local news? And I thought, okay, why did business shows in the past fail? And to me, it was one of two things. You either had a guy who's got the money to do it, but he didn't know TV. Mm. So it's a chamber of commerce type, you know, hey, we need to do business news, but had no idea how to do TV. Or a guy like me who knew how to do TV, but didn't have money, you know, to do it. How do you, how do you marry the two? And that, that was, um, you know, kind of the spark. I just thought if I could get this thing on the air, it would be successful. I, I really felt that it would. So I just made a little flip chart, about uh, six or eight pages, went to a um, uh, very small number of people. John Mutz, who was, uh, mm-hmm. um, well, he'd left, yeah, he was post-Lieutenant Governor. Uh, role, but but very prominent uh, business person, and John Merlin, who was at the chamber for years, and uh, I think two others. And I just say, hey, would you give me you know 30 minutes? Just want to talk to you about that. To a person, they were absolutely. Kind of went through this deal, told them what I was thinking about, and to a person, they were like, absolutely, it's it's something that can work. Yep. And we would support, we would help you, uh, you know, if, if if you needed it. And, and then the kind of the seminal moment, and I always laugh about this, but it had, it had progressed. I, I was working at Channel 6 still, and I said, uh, well, we need to get some dollars, you know, some sponsorship dollars. Right. And uh, went down to the IU School of Business. It was not Kelly yet. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, met with the dean. Dan Dalton, big guy. He was new. I had not met him, but I just thought, you know, I do a lot with the with school. They would seem to be a natural. They had just gotten the check for twenty three million or whatever it was for the Kelly School of Business. So Dan, I send give, give this thing to Dan Dalton. He looks at it. He has a couple questions. He just kind of shoved it back and said, "Yeah, I think we'll do that." 
And I was like, and I will, I'll never forget, I walked outside and I thought, oh my God, what am I gonna do now? <laughs> I, 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 it was a fall day, the wind hit me, beautiful fall, uh, late morning hit me in the face and I'm like, you know, what am I gonna do? I gotta do it now. And that was the start uh, of the uh, of the show that we got on the air. It was really unique and interesting how it happened. And to be able to get it both on commercial, we were on Channel 6 and Channel 20. So we were in both public, and which is very unusual. But doing it that way allowed us to pool resources and to, to get it on and to, to, uh, to make it happen. And, um, and then the next big hurdle... I got to thinking about it, you know, where you're on the air for a year, and it was going pretty well. It was getting a lot of traction, and we're getting some sponsors. And the relationship, the deal I had with Channel Six, I said, "Look, you can give me a, a you know, just a, a, a modest talent fee, but then give me a percentage of the revenue that comes mm -hmm. in. Okay. That way, if this doesn't work, you know, no, no, no bad. You know, we're both we, we both walk away. Well, it was going very well. Met with the GM, and he was, uh, you know pleading poverty and all that kind of stuff, which is not unusual. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, no talent fee, don't give me a talent fee, but give me whatever it was, a 5% or 10% increase in the percentage. He agreed to it and we got it rolling and the dollars kept coming in. And then it hit me, now wait a minute. I came up with this idea, I've done all the work, Who, whose show is it? Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say it's mine. Right. But legally, you know, I'm saying, you know, Channel 6, they can just say, hey, screw you, buddy. This is our show. It airs on our station. Right. So I thought, gosh, I've got to come up with a plan that I get ownership of the show. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes, and cut me off. No, you're good. When it, it, this reminded me of Mrs. Jordan, Michael oh, Jordan's my, mother. Yeah. yeah Negotiating with Nike. Yeah, yeah. And um, so uh, just by happenstance, I went up and uh, got a meeting with uh, Scott Jones, uh, technology entrepreneur yeah. at the time, <clears throat> and just about a, 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 a tech segment sponsorship. And he said, you know, I mean, I've seen the show. I, I think there's real opportunity here. And this was really at the onset of, you know, the Internet. You know, it was really in its early yeah. days. And uh, he said, why don't you come up with an idea to make the show – a statewide show, not just Indianapolis, but make it statewide. And then uh, also, you know, bring in other elements of media, you know, radio, um, newsletters, uh, whatever the case might be, the, obviously a website. The predecessor of driving, the, the phrase they have, driving content, creating exactly. and building content. Totally, yeah. and, and uh, getting it to people, as we used to say, when they want it, where they want it, how they want it. <clears throat> whether it's, maybe it's just TV, maybe it's TV, maybe it's everything, whatever. And uh, so I came up with a plan, a model to do it, and it took about six months or so, and we agreed that I would bring the intellectual property um, to the table, Scott would invest uh, the money, and we created Grow Indiana Media Ventures in 2000, so 23 years ago. And we started with uh, two stations, Channel 6, Channel 20, and then, um, and that was it. We, we launched a website, and then we kind of dabbled and got into TV and just, it was doing things we didn't know what we didn't know and you know we'd try things and do some things wouldn't work other things would work and we'd lead us to to the next thing so that just kind of started that process and then over time 
we got up to you know 14 stations commercial and public on the tv side 23 24 stations on radio doing it every day and i we didn't have the equipment to do radio mm. so i would drive down to wibc every morning at 7 a.m and we'd go in a studio and tape the deal and they'd air it and so anyway so to, to drill down a little bit yeah. on the entrepreneurial aspect of this um, and, and you touched on this a little bit, talking sponsorships and mm -hmm. talking, you know, um, sort of the, the ad share and things like that. But when in your world, in the world of media and journalism, how how you say I have this idea, mm -hmm. but I need you, you mentioned I needed money. Mm -hmm. So how did you raise the capital or what avenue did you take for someone to, to sort of front load that cost to mm -hmm. get it up and running and then further? How do you monetize that business model? Obviously, yep. you touched on advertisements and sponsorships, but if you could speak a little bit mm -hmm. in you know, kind of nuts and bolts on that, because the people that do listen to the podcast, obviously, a lot of them being business backgrounds, yeah. talking shop, journalism and media is, is certainly a, it's it's a different animal than different. a lot of Yeah, yeah. And what I did, you know, initially, uh, you know, we put the show together and it would air on Channel 6. Channel 20, we gave them the show. We just gave it to them and they could air it. They could do underwriting, that kind of thing. So in exchange for production services, so we were trading everything out, okay. you know, trying to yeah. make it work financially. Um, that's how we did that. But on Channel 6, it was just a matter of they were selling and I was selling. Both of us were selling. And whatever the pot ended up being, that percentage came to us. So we had a product and they would sell it just like they'd sell you know, Oprah or whatever the case might be and, and got the revenue, got the revenue going. What there. prompted them to say, yes, we want to create airtime yep. for your show. Yeah. Great question. Uh, because, uh, and I, I think the bottom line, like anything else, uh, it was money. I mean, you could say, Hey, it was a great show. They wanted to have a great show, maybe a little bit, but it was money. And they saw, and I think I persuaded them, especially after I, you came to the table with a big, um, headline sponsorship, they said, well, hmm, okay, that's interesting. We could have a, we could have a business show that a credible business show that, uh, makes us look good and all that, but we could drive, you know, we get money. So, so we, that's what we did. Then when we went out on our own, uh, and created the company, we bought that we would buy the time from channel six to start out with. Okay. And then we had the ability to sell all within that hour and to make our money. So we had to make more money, obviously, than revenue wise, than what it cost us to, uh, to buy the time. You wanted more coming in than you did going yeah, exactly. out. Exactly, yes, yes, <laughs> Novel, a very, right? good, very good strategy. Um, but, uh, and then it, it, as we began to franchise around the state, if you will, ABC station in Fort Wayne and, and some of the other ones, we would give them the show and there are 20 spots in the show. We keep 10 of them so we can create a statewide network, if you will. They get 10 of them so they can sell on their own. And we don't have to put a sales person in Fort Wayne or Northeast Indiana. They're doing that up there. But, um, but it's really about, you know, positioning the, and then the, the other piece, the, um, uh, you know, the internet, the radio, all the things we were doing, it was great for content distribution, but also great for um, ad sales because you could say, okay, you, you, you could do a hybrid. Okay, we'll do TV. You could do a little radio too. Or, hey, you could do um, the newsletter. Or maybe you don't do it. Maybe you do the newsletter and radio. So you gave people options. Yeah. And that, that much that bigger reach too. as well. Yeah, yeah. Ab absolutely. 
And, um, and I think back to those early days because, as you can imagine, in 2000, the, um, the Internet was a different place. And quality-wise, you know, the, right. oh my, we had a, you know, how many times, the, you know, our video, because we would digitize video every week because okay. we wanted to create this brand that, hey, this is, this is where it's going and we're going to be there. And it was tough to watch because it would freeze up, you know, every 20 seconds and, right. and that kind of thing. But the dial-up modem had a little trouble. Oh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, But, you know, we got through that and technology evolved and um, you know, it all worked out. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So it's been 20 plus years of the current venture mm -hmm. being your thing. Uh, historical trends in that time period, and I know that there's a there could be a lot of options to choose from here. But um, what have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen, or biggest shifts that you've seen mm -hmm. in Central Indiana and/or the state of Indiana in terms of you know business and and how people do business in that mm -hmm. time period? You know, technology um, certainly is a is a is a huge driver. Technology has enabled, it's enabled us to do what we do. Without advances in technology, radio is an example. It used to be that if you wanted to do a radio uh, report or a program, you would have to, uh, you know, you have to get an ISDN line, you'd have to invest in all this, this technology and very expensive uh, to do it. Now, and it's been this way for a long, long time, you have a software program that we can do at home, and we do it at home, do it wherever, office, home, you do it, you edit it. I'm sure like probably the podcast here is a good example as well. And then you just put it up on a, uh, on a, uh, on a site and folks go out and get it done easy. We would never be able to do that. Uh, would, would not have been able to do it, uh, 20 years ago. TV, it's hard to believe that we can send a, a 30 minute, it used to be an hour, but a 30 minute 4k quality, uh, broadcast, you know, video, on the internet to stations where it used to be you had to buy satellite time okay very expensive so you know if we wanted to get the show in northwest indiana and south bend and fort wayne evansville and all those places put it up on a bird and it was not cheap um now we literally put it on an ftp site uh it takes a while to download but the quality is there and it's uh it, it's good you know i think from a overall business Standpoint, I think here in in Indiana, I think it's been interesting to watch things evolve. You know, 20, 20 plus years ago, 25 years ago, that was right at the, we started the show right when the kind of the tech movement was mm -hmm. getting going here, you know, and it's funny to look back on that because some of the, some of the uh, things they talked about that Indiana needed to do, needed to get connected, needed to get more, you know, nonstop flights, need more venture capital, need more, you know, need, need daylight saving time, right. you know, that whole, whole thing, which, and so many of those things have happened. And I think, you know, Indiana has always been a conservative state and conservative mind in terms of not, not big risk takers. Um, I think that's, and we haven't, even though we have all these great entrepreneurs over the many, many decades, you know, Cook and Lily and Hillenbrand, and, you know, you can go on down the list, but we haven't supported entrepreneurs, I don't think, as we should, you know, and I, maybe it's a Midwest thing, you know, you, 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 you start a, 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 a job, you create an idea, you fail, and you looked at as a failure. Whereas in California and some of these other markets, it's almost a badge of honor. What are you going to do next? Right. 
been a lot of people trying to change that, and I think, I think, um, I think they're having some success. I think the other piece, and this isn't a direct business thing, but this whole, um, well, it is a direct deal, I guess, but uh, talent and how Indiana has got to figure a way to not only keep people here, but we got to attract people who want to live here. Yeah, and with these statewide ready 2.0 funds that just got approved communities all over the state are doing some really cool things to improve quality of life which used to be looked at as this uh, quality of life you know who cares it's a big deal and in economic development and and i think i think that's a big a big thing going going forward you know we've got uh you know our tax climate here I think is is generally speaking, you know, pretty highly regarded from a business standpoint. It's just we've got to get the people uh, who want to who want to live here. Yeah, we've been talking about the brain drain for mm -hmm. years, as long as I can remember. Uh, but I think some of our mutual recent conversations with people like Elaine Beadle and mm -hmm. some of the things that she's working on, right? Um, just another effort by the state to try to retain people not just from the colleges here, universities in, in state, but then also attracting people from other states into Indiana, which I think you've seen a migration from Illinois and migration from other places. It's, yeah. it's starting to happen. Yeah, it, you know, in a number of ways. And I think it's interesting. I saw a stat one time that Indiana is top five, I think, in terms of attracting people from outside of the state to go to college here. Yeah. But if you look at how many stay here, we're like bottom five or bottom 10, whatever it is, yeah. they all leave. Yeah. And you're seeing people, Northwest Indiana, you mentioned Illinois, and I mentioned the you know tax climate, fiscal health of the state, uh, which are all positive things now. And you look at a very different picture in Illinois. If you go to Northwest Indiana, which has struggled for so long and had so many issues, uh, now this extension of the South Shore rail line and the double tracking up there to knock off like 35 minutes of travel time from Northwest Indiana to downtown Chicago, they're getting people to move from Chicago, people who work in downtown Chicago. They don't want to live over there. Mm -hmm. They'll come over to, to, to Valpo or Whiting or some of these areas where they've built some nice you know, subdivisions, invested in their downtowns, and the quality of life is good. So you're starting to see it. Uh, around the state, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. That, that I wonder then if also the pandemic hasn't, not strategically, mm -hmm. but helped in that. Okay, Gary, you would normally have to go to downtown Chicago five mm -hmm. days a week. Now you may only have to go three right. times a week. Right, it's more incentive to even look. No question. And there's an, an initiative, and it's got a name. I can't remember what it is, but to attract these remote workers to live here. You know, maybe right. they work in. I, we interviewed one from Orlando, uh, Florida. That's where they worked. But they could work from anywhere. So she, with this program, and they're giving communities incentives to, you know, to attract those workers uh, and to get them to move here. And so there's another opportunity there, yeah. Well, Asi, so you brought up our uh, prior episode with Elaine Beadle, mm -hmm. which um, I want to ask you, Without getting into politics or religion yeah. or all the other taboo topics right. out there, uh, we asked her the same question. And, and to her credit, she gave a very fair and reasonable answer, considering she could have been very, uh, call it PC about it mm -hmm. because of her position. Right. Um, but, you know, when you look at the state of Indiana and you mentioned that stat of people coming in mm -hmm. for education, especially higher education, but then not being able to retain those folks, what is it about? What are some of the issues that Indiana needs to, to probably focus on and figure out uh, to not only retain young adults to set up shop mm -hmm. in Indiana, both from their raising their families, if they should choose to do that, but, but also their businesses, uh, but 
being more welcoming of business expansion mm -hmm. into our state? What are some of the top things that, uh, from your perspective and your your um, exposure? Yeah, you know, certainly to me, and I always you know I never want to get dive into this, but the uh, uh, RIFRA, you know, the religious mm -hmm. uh, controversy that that was, you know, and you have people on both sides saying it wasn't that big a deal. I, I've talked to numerous people who said it really was a big deal, just from a perception standpoint. Okay. Uh, out there, uh, so those social issues, and if you look at a guy like a former governor like Mitch Daniels, you know he, I think, intentionally stayed away from, you know, just diving into those those social issues. But um, that is, you know, to me, uh, kind of an unforced error, maybe, you know, in in some of those those social issues that get the attention, right or wrong, that tends to shine a negative light uh, on the state. So that's one thing. Uh, but I think, you know, and I think you go back to um, the Daniels uh, governorship and that focus on, as he used to say, building uh, the best sandbox, you know, possible for for business and people to play in, if you will. And I think that attention to the tax structure, quality of life, uh, and then making it a place, it, it has amazed me, the number of CEOs and others that I've talked to uh, who've moved here, who talk about other states and how it's almost like they're anti-business. I mean, I can't imagine why a state would be anti-business. Right. But he said, no, it's unbelievable. He said, what Indiana has created here is an environment where they want you to be successful and you feel it. And I think that, I think that's been a, uh, you know, a big, a, a big deal. The, um, I think it's Governing Magazine. Um, you know, you have all these these uh, polls and you know, best states for business. CNBC does it. Some are more, I think, germane than others. But um, that govern I'm probably getting it wrong. Governing Magazine does one. I think every other year where they poll 350 CEOs or whatever, and Indiana consistently has been top five. Nice by you know from the ceos the decision makers who say if you had to locate your business in a state where would it be so i think that's good that's not to say there aren't challenges here i think you know infrastructure been a lot of money invested in it the you know, i-69 some others i think we need you know there are probably some additional infrastructure things that 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 could happen the other piece that doesn't get attention but to me it's rural economic development you know to me indianapolis and if you've been to Fort Wayne, or if you haven't been to Fort Wayne lately, it's unbelievable what's going on in their downtown. Mm -hmm. uh, the amount of investment and things that I started my career there. I, I remember downtown very well, and those sidewalks certainly did roll up at, at five o'clock. Now you've got corporate um, folks, you know, Star Financial, new headquarters down there. They've got a minor league ballpark. They've got, I think they're the smallest or one of the smallest cities in the country with the Ruth's Chris Steakhouse okay. uh, in downtown. So they, and they have this. Um, this old General Electric plant, one time employed 14,000, 15,000 people. It's a live, work, play development now. And so they're doing great things. So you go to the cities, the metro areas, they're, they're doing okay. But you get out into rural Indiana, and Indiana, much of Indiana is rural. Mm -hmm. um, it's not the case. Yeah. So I, tougher, tougher not to crack. But I think how, how do you how do you reach out and how do you give support to these rural communities like where I grew up in Clinton, Indiana, you know, used to have the coal mines over there. They've all dried up. Um, a number of businesses in that area are gone. Fortunately, they've got an Alanco plant there, but the job opportunities are slim. So. Yeah.
Yeah, I mean, we, we do a lot of business in the rural areas mm-hmm. of throughout the Midwest. And when, when driving from any of one of our sites or through those markets, you can certainly see uh, not just signs of the, the distant past, talking the 70s and 80s when there was manufacturing in some of mm-hmm. these. And I don't mean... I don't mean uh, a lot of manufacturing, mm-hmm. but something that was in sort of an anchor employer for right. that community, for those who are non-farmers, mm-hmm. now they're empty. Yep. And you have to wonder where are the folks that are still living in some of these towns that are, again, are not in agriculture, uh, where are they commuting to? And, yeah. and how do you, you may not be able to revive every small town, but how does the state attract uh, businesses to expand at least maybe sort of instead of being regional, mm-hmm. somehow find a, a balance between regional and local. Where's yes. that middle ground so that people can live in their community still, but commute into a kind of more of a, a hotbed of, right. of, of industry and employment. Right, which gets back to the whole education uh, education piece. And, you know, coming out of high school, you know, four-year colleges and universities, amazing here in the state, you know, public and private, both uh, great institutions. Uh, but you know, I think the culture needs to embrace, and I think they're beginning to do it, embrace the two year associate degrees and certificates and those kinds of things that can get you something coming out of high school that instead of going to a fast food job, you're maybe going into some sort of manufacturing or advanced mm-hmm. manufacturing type piece. The whole electrification of the auto industry that we're seeing billions of dollars going into Kokomo and New Carlisle and Terre Haute, they're breaking ground today on something over there. Um, those are opportunities. Those There's gonna be disruption. You know, the traditional manufacturing, right. you know, is is those, those skills are kind of going away, but new skills. So how, how do you get more kids uh, engaged in careers and, and, and trained to do the jobs of the future. Yeah. So here's a loaded question for you. 25 years you've interviewed and spoken to a lot of different people, a lot of different companies, um, and not trying to play favorites, but if you had to say, okay, well, who are the top three or five stories that just Mm -hmm. really still stick out in your mind? Who, or what would those be? You know, one that I've told before, that uh, it's it's not really a, a, a business story, but in terms of how um, senior executives uh, carry themselves, uh, I will always remember Steve Hilbert, Conseco, mm-hmm. the big high-flying CEO, always so nice to me, um, very nice to me. And this would have been, well, in the late 90s, maybe I can't remember when it would have been, but when he was very much high profile and in the news and he gave us an interview. And uh, you think about how, how executives build their brand, build their business. I will always remember the first time he came into our studio, uh, everybody anticipated there was gonna be this whole, you know, you know, posse's gonna come in, you know, and this whole big production. He was by himself, came in, and when he came into the studio, he didn't come over and say hello to me. He went to every person on the production crew and shook their hands and introduced himself. Okay. And, and that has always stuck with me because when he left, everybody in that room thought he was great. Yeah. <laughs> Just taking time, uh, you know, to interact with people, you know, the people piece, you know, of the equation. But, you know, I mentioned John Mutz earlier. There's a guy 
who was a success, uh, success in farming, in business, in politics, and gave so much of his life to um, Indiana. You know, and uh, he, he's one of the uh, he's one of the uh, one of my favorites uh, over time. But the other thing, kind of just generally speaking, I mentioned Hilbert, but but these national people like like Martha Stewart and and um, Warren Buffett, mm-hmm. and you think these people typically, uh, you know, I would say more times than not, they are nicer than nice. Mar- uh, Martha Stewart came in for this conference. I got an interview with her, and the fir- we. St- sat down and she says, well, and we start talking about Long's Donuts. She st- her first stop was Long's Donuts coming into town. I'm like, Martha Stewart at Long's Donuts? Was this pre or post Snoop Dogg relationship? Oh, that's, I think it was pre. I think oh, really? it was actually oh. pre, if I remember right. That's, that's a good point. Um, I wonder why Long's Donuts would be her first stop. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Warren Buffett. I remember he came here, uh, Geico. It was a Berkshire Hathaway company. They had a big deal up yeah. in Carmel. And then we were told, you're just going to do a big group gangbang interview, you know, up there. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to get a one-on-one interview when it's going to happen. And so I just went over to him and he said, yeah, oh, sure. So he went over, we sat down and then afterwards he took, uh, he took pictures. we, We took some pictures and he pulled his wallet out and he said, here, try to take it from me. And I, so I'm, I'm grabbing it. He's going, so we have a picture of me trying to take Warren Buffett's <laughs> wallet. Um, but, you know, lots of those, those fun stories. And the, the stories that I like are going out and talking to entrepreneurs and people who have made things happen, especially in smaller communities uh, around the state because they do exist. Uh, Who's your bat company up in northwest Indiana? Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy there, he had a little restaurant outside of Culver. Indiana, George Steinbrenner would come down and visit his kids who were going to school at Culver. Yeah. And uh, he would stop at this guy's restaurant. And uh, Steinbrenner said, well, what do you want to do? He said, I, I just like, love a job in baseball. And so Steinbrenner gave him a job as a, as a low-level scout in the Yankees organization. And this guy did that for a while. Then he got into making bats. So he created a bat company up in northwest Indiana. Had, you know, sells a lot of bats to uh, uh, you know youth and, and all that kind of but he had about a dozen major leaguers who used his bats mm-hmm. and you know you know stories like that are always always fun yeah what would you say um, you know and talk to all these folks and you, you mentioned Steve um, what traits do they share what or what traits do you see that are common in in folks that are successful in business the ones that are to me that are really successful um, have an interest in people you know what i mean yeah. uh so you know when they're talking to somebody they're not they're not looking through them or looking over their head thinking about hey how you know when can this when's this conversation going to end they genuinely care about what that person is telling them and i think you know in terms of the executive the worker relationship is so important obviously but i think that's that's a big thing being good listeners and uh which i think is the the trait of a, a best trait of an interviewer is just listening, you know, and not, you know, for that next, what might be that next question, but being good listeners, being people, pe- people, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, and uh, that, that whole, I mean, it's trite, uh, but it, it, it is so true, I think, that if you care about your employees and they feel as though you care about them, you're going to get a better, 
you're going to get a better product. Sure. I mean, you know, uh, and the one, and, 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 and these days, just just the customer service piece is seemingly has evaporated at so many in so many industries. But those those uh, companies, you know, Mike's Car Wash. I don't want to, uh, you know give a, a plug here, but, you know, I look at the Dom family in Fort Wayne and they built that company with a focus on customer service. You know, they would do, I think they sent employees down to the Disney Institute, you know, okay. for a car, car wash. Right. What right. are you talking But you go in there and now crew and Mike's, um, you look at the customer service top notch. And so those, those companies who, and you got to invest, you know, there's a money piece of it, which sometimes makes it difficult, but those companies that believe in their people, treat their people right, um, and think about treating the customer right. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I have a Steve Hilbert story, and this is one uh, that I can share. Yeah. Um, our, our mom used to have some frozen yogurt stores here in town, and one of them was in the fashion mall in the old food court that went above the street there. And I don't know if I was in high school or maybe early part of college, but it was summertime or whatever, I was working there. And Steve and some people that he was with would oftentimes come in mm -hmm. and he would wanted to get some yogurt. So we we're chatting, great tipper by the way, which this is <laughs> when he didn't really tip at right. fast food. Yeah. Um, but he asked me like what I was doing and, and long story short, he, um, I can't remember how it came up, but he said, you know, to get to this position, you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. The key thing is understanding what are the things you're not really good at and surrounding yourself with experts in those things. And so I think he said, you know, accounting and finance was not really his thing. So he wanted to make sure that he had the smartest accounting and finance person on his team that could make up for that. I was like, Great. No, I, like I could not agree more. And again, that's that's a that's an executive who is you know comfortable enough in his own skin to say, you know what, I yeah. don't know about that. Let me let me get somebody who does in there, and build a great team. Then then, then treat him right. Uh, and what I like to really like to see, and there are lots of examples of it, but but executives who give back from a mentoring standpoint, and sometimes that can be tough because it takes time and those t kinds of things, but really helps to support young people in that, in, that, uh, in that journey that they're beginning on because certainly we all have had people who have done that. I mean, I, I, I remember, uh, and it's just, it can be a little thing. I remember the, the first time I covered the legislature from a station in Fort Wayne, and I, I had no idea what I was doing down here, you know, and I put together a story and I thought it was terrible. And I remember I got back and, you know, we got it on the air and, you know, made the big trip to Indy. And uh, I remember the news director called me in and he, he, he thought, of, and I don't know whether he was just being nice or not, but he said, you know, that, that was really good. Uh, you know, and he kind of, you know, talked me up, coached me up a little bit. And it's amazing how something, how a little thing like that can click. It gives you the confidence to do that next thing. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't take much time to do that, you know, to give people that support and that positive reinforcement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you kind of, uh, said a good segue into my last question for you, which was of all the folks that you've been around and the fact that you have also taken the leap yourself to start your own thing, what advice would you give some of our folks to, you know, how, how can they be industrious? How can they get uncomfortable sometimes? And then that's okay. Yeah, uh, great question. And, and uh, don't mean to be trite with the, the answer, but the old Nike, you know, just do it yeah. thing. Because I, I look back, I always had the utmost respect for, for uh, entrepreneurs, for people who went out and did things. But I could never, ever envision myself as doing it. 
ever. I said, I could never do that. And as you know, this whole show thing kind of came about and one thing led to another, and all of a sudden I was doing it. And, and yeah, a lot of uncomfortable situations, you know, areas that, uh, you know, a, another one uh, in terms of uncomfortable, when I started out public speaking, now I do it all the time, but in the early days, I used to hate it and I thought I was terrible at it. And I, it used to just drive me crazy. And then, but doing it, getting in to those, getting out of your comfort zone, I think is is the big thing. And 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 believing in yourself. I mean, right. I know these are all these are all trite things, but so true. I, you know, I I think 2008 uh, recession. So we were about 10 years old as a show, and man, advertising was tough. And you know, we you know. We had about 12, you know, about a dozen employees. So I was not, not only responsible for my family, but 12 families. Sure. You guys know how that, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a deal that's, that's scary. Yeah. And, but, you know, you get through it, you, get, you, 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 you sack up and, and, and you get it done. You bring people, do, do whatever you have to do. But I just think it's just doing it and not being afraid to be uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, yeah. well said. One. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate it. Enjoyed it, guys, very much. Congrats on the podcast. And uh, thanks for listening to me uh, ramble on here a bit. No, no that's fantastic. <laughs> awesome. Great. And thank all you guys for tuning in today to this episode of the Industrious Podcast. Thanks again for joining us from wherever your podcast, or if you happen to be on the Assessor YouTube channel, thank you for tuning in. Until then, or until next time, I should say, don't forget, guys, be industrious.